Season 2, a serial podcast about a man they would call Joe Millionaire, a rapist. A story of absolute perversion kneeling at the altar of the god oil, bathed in power, drugs, and slathered in sex. Thank you for listening to True Crime 49. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the bottom of the clouds. If you haven't listened to previous Season 2 episodes, we encourage you to do so. While they are not required to understand the last episodes in Season 2, it would be enlightening. Even to this day, chubby little babies born with a large blue-purple spot on their lower back are given the names of their ancestors. Even while great-grandfather, his hands have skinned a thousand seals and his eyes squinted of part life in the brilliant blinding white and most of it in the blue-black world of the ice pack. He is laying across the room, nearly dead, wheezing in the furs. They bring the child over the gray-tinged eyes looking up in the last moments on this earth, looking at the warm glowing life of the baby. The shaking withered hand with reptile spotted fingers touches the glowing soft skin. As they would have it, he is actually seeing himself. The old man smiles and slips into eternity, excited and grateful for the adventures that await him. The warm, teary eyes among the people, the new friend asks the European, who is astonished and writing in his field book the events. Warm, teary eyes smiling, what do you guys call this gift of life? Gulping and anxious, the European was conflicted and said, we call it reincarnation. Welcome to True Crime 49. In the year of 1959, a man named James Thompson was fiddling the last of his nuts and washers on this old Quonset hut left over as military surplus. Right there on the corner of Old Seward and Fireweed, the smell of burgers and shiny cars, the Arctic Roadrunner just over the way, the kids slicking their hair back foot up on the tire. The bed at the Providence Hospital that they will slip from this world in is across town, a few hundred feet in the air floating above the musk egg in the wet moss. Nearby a small wooden building with a few late night nuns playing gin. The gals are grateful those years right after they'd won the war, there were so many babies. They had been at a breaking point. The medical supplies were gone. They couldn't even get a rest. But then it subsided. It's nice to have it behind them. They honestly were desperate right before it broke. The cards flick into the night under an Edison bulb where Union crews will make the foundations for towers of concrete. James, as most people called him, had noticed also that there were strollers everywhere. He also noticed there were piles and piles of hardware the military had shipped up here and didn't need to. He was buying half warehouses full of nuts and bolts for next to nothing. He hauled them back 
and the employees bag them up in reasonable amounts, label them, and hopefully sell them. The old sourdoughs come slowly into this nut and bolt store, looking suspiciously at the cellophane, they call it. His rumpled hand is investigating the small aluminum staple through the cardboard folded over as packaging. The wire fastens the clear plastic through the cardboard and it's strong enough to hold the bag of nuts and bolts. The old pioneer is distracted as he laying out his coins on the counter. James heard the dialogue from the back and came out to the front as the old pioneer was walking out. What was all that about? The old man had negotiated to buy our stapler for two dollars. The kid's voice had cracked when he said it. James Hart leapt. Oh dear, Jimmy. That was way too much. James looks out the window. The pioneer is tossing the bag of nuts and bolts into the cab like pistachio shells. But he puts that pretty little stapler on the seat right next to him in the old truck. James walked to the back and grabbed another stapler out of the surplus, a box full. On the box it was labeled Fire Island NORAD Control. James held it in his hand and stared off through the immaculate shelves of his warehouse, through the toilet room and the back wall of the metal armadillo shell Quonset hut, and his eyes surveying across the back of the lot. The ground looked like it was flat gravel just under those trees. It was just a little nut and bolt shop, but it became a place where you'd see a father walk more like a man and he'd swagger a little and push up his glasses and sniff when he picked up the 11 inch bar chainsaw from the shelf. His 15 year old son proud in the image of his father holding the bar oil and the two stroke oil like ammo cans. Braggarts beware a big loudmouth about to grab the beautiful PV from its heavy hooks. Great-great-grandfather PV invented this thing and he still has logger great-great-grandsons felling timbers in the steamy Tongas. Or is it actually him in the fog? The swashbuckling rodeo pants and the spike-corked boots part viking leaping onto a perch. His great-great-grandson in the mist would make great-great-grandmother blush from the picnic blanket with her bustle in her bonnet. The loudmouth picks up the PV and the Alaska womenfolk wince as the steel jaw jobs heading for the man's plum soft fingers. A leprechaun, small and tough as nails, reaches up effortlessly, snatches the PV like an extension of himself. The women folk are relieved the man was going to pinch off his own damned finger. The leprechaun leaves the big loudmouth speechless and holding his finger, moments from being mangled. And the PV steel jaw swinging back on the display. Little girls with their hair tied up but wispy curls are in the way. She's trying on her own Helly Hensons, and the tiny rain bib has these tiny buckles and little pockets. She tugs little, her lips pout out the center of attention as daddy helps her with her new coat. Standing, looking at her own rain gear, the countermen tip a hat to her and treat the young man that comes in usually as a gopher, just an expediter, 
They give him a wink and they treat him as if he's an old salt. In fact, nearly every stranger in the store gives silent praises to the father and the daughter in a nod and a smile and the beam in their eye. A tool for any occasion, a renaissance of homeowners holding blowtorches. In line with oil workers buying their own gloves, the fisherman kid from Cordova buying spools of leaded line is enamored. A pilot with questions on the grade of this bolt is next at the counter. And the plumber's putty literally became a beer can for a moment in the man's hand during the snowmobile story. Blizzards would have us at the counter. Bush orders would be stacked with Alaska tools and equipment. The shipping label says Shaktulik. And we'd love every minute of it. You could smoke cigarettes at the counter, having the plumber draw the pen schematic of how the old man with the new torch and soudret, wrapped still in cellophane, can fix his own copper pipes. The old guy is licking his lips, watching the pen on the paper. This was AIH. You could go in there, caveman, and walk out the Terminator. Alaska grade. It was a true blessing, and they were opening new stores like the one in Juneau. Alaskan industrial hardware has been a staple in Anchorage since 1959, prior to the 1964 earthquake. Though usually not the cheapest, it has been there through various boom years, natural disasters, and family outings. The milk run is what they call it when the big shiny jets make the same stop and goes at all the little airports coming up the lower panhandle in the islands. Often in the dark, rain, and fog, and to think it is the same run the old-timers had to do, and to think they did it without the bowing, and without the bells and all those whistles. The tray tables are down, and the captain has turned off the light, free to go about the cabin. A young girl is sitting in the airliner cruising, the excitement of the window in her eyes of a child in awe and amazement. Only till now has she stopped to look around, momentarily, nothing to see out the window. But blackness, she'll check again in a minute. She notices there is an old woman sitting next to her. She'd never noticed. The old woman is sleeping and there's nothing obvious, but the old woman seems from another time. And the old woman has a newspaper in her hand. It appears old as well. The girl cocks her head to see what does it say. And the paper is onion rumple. And the imperfect type of the newspaper says, Juno Empire, 1965. The girl looks astonished and counts on her fingers, eyes racing. The paper is over 40 years old. Is she caught in a ghost story? And her eyes snap up to the old woman. But her brow is sad. In a dream, she looks concerned. The girl looks at the paper, the soft old hand jerked a little, and the paper sloughed open, just barely enough. 1964, the records he had ordered through Sears' catalog, it had taken three and a half weeks. He saved 18% on each album. The schnapps was a little bottle, with another one, just like it, tucked in the couch cushion beside his leg. A very light, sweet liqueur. The tall glass fifth of hard liquor is kept out of sight, and by the time it appears on the table, the little bottle that lasted quite a while 
Both are empty, one is under the couch. The music is turned up a bit louder. One guy keeps switching out the small 45s, his job to keep the music going. You can't have a good party if the music keeps stopping. Besides, from across the couch he can see it all developing right across from him. The sleazy 21-year-old is pretending with and lying to the young 15-year-old girl on the couch. She'd been tapping her foot with the music and the charade of moderation. He was shameless in making her feel like she was a college girl or something. She looks up one last time and her eyes are drunken and still unaware of who she will be. The guy is surprised the album already over. He was entranced as the 21-year-old began in on her. Pushing her back against the couch, the act of, sh 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 yeah, it's okay, and the confused half-ragdoll protesting, sloppy actions of, this isn't me, no way, what? The blur spinning hid the rocking realization, like from a distant, confused and betrayed of her savior and the angels and even God in heaven. The names he called her, she was numb, watching it in the spirit world, motionless expression, watching from the rhythm of the horseback galloping molasses. And she did it. She bore her burden and held on to steel handles within herself, and she had weathered it, and she would move forward she knew as he was climbing off of her. The 15-year-old girl, now 54 years old, simply stated outside the courtroom regarding Joe Bohm. He is dangerous. He's victimized girls since I was a girl, 39 years ago. People like him don't change. The spinning world becoming bitter, wanting her head to clear, taken by surprise that she was still yet so young and naive. She came apart at the seams, taken completely unaware, when the guys whose apartment it was laid his hands on her. And it had not actually crossed her mind until that moment that there were three of them, and the gross guy sitting next to the record player all night, her eyes clearing, squinting, he is still over there, staring down at them, and he's acting like a monkey. Sheets in her mind tear from their hangings, the horses running, as if crazy now. And there are pieces of fabric blowing torn in the breeze, sheets on which the scenes were to be projected. The scenes of who you were supposed to be, revealed in damaged portions now. The haunt of the record playing. He had bragged calling it the chart topper, and the only one in the state the outside of his eyebrows raising, and the back of his neck becoming tight. The haunt of the record player gone in a snap breath, the hum whine of the jet in the night, the cool air hissing. And they are past and somewhere beyond in the year 2000 and something. Adverse childhood experiences, known as ACEs, suggests the more adverse child experiences you have, 
the more likely you will have chronic health problems, mental illness, or substance abuse issues. Some of these experiences are childhood abuse, sexual abuse, a parent missing from the home or incarcerated, not having basic needs met, or a parent with mental illness. Most children who end up on the street have an ACE score of 6 or above out of 10, leaving them vulnerable and susceptible to manipulation. Predators can see in a group of girls which one has her head down and a quiet, reserved shuffle. Traffickers are great listeners, observers, and are charming, easy to create a bond with. When a child feels unloved, unworthy, or neglected, they are primed for this manipulation. In 1990, an old office in London, England finally closed forever. It had been opened out of necessity. Shortly after Hitler had tried out his war machine for the first time, the Polish officials had fled in exile safely to France. Walking out onto the porch, they were surprised when through the beautiful tree line came the Zonnekrafratzeug. The shaking head of the officer, the tassel from his hat, looks like human hair. The smoke rising behind them, there is blood marks splashed across the metal tracks. The Polish officials in exile were horrified and went over the waters to London. It was in that very office, on that English oak table, that the official in exile had typed out in exact detail every witness account that had made it across the waters, over the land and through the fog of war, somewhere from within their darkened and ravaged motherland. And they would often show up here, having escaped. The German soldiers are systematically performing raids into all the Polish cities kidnapping in mass cargo all of the young women, these girls are sent back to Germany or retained locally into one of the hundreds of military brothels. A photo is laying on his table of one such building. The German soldiers are laughing out in the street as clusters of other soldiers are meandering out, having had hurried into beneath a beautiful mosaic tile of the Star of David into a dim synagogue remodeled. Where the beds had been assembled quite nicely, the young girls recounting with exactment that it was 32 men a day that would stumble in upon them. The German soldiers died eventually, and one of them in particular, when he was dying, his wife was still at home, gasping at life like a salmon dying in the shallows. Soon the enemy will be over everything, and upon her is the truth of it. The father laying, dying, gnashing for breath, his own clawed hand ripping ribbon medals from his chest. A rotten heart baby cries for nothing in the night, as the horizon is glowing, and fires and bomb breaks flash. The rumble in the ground is barely noticeable. His own little son would have to see it all from the image of his father, and he saw her with the conquerors, and she gave herself to them as a wife. That first step onto his America, the United States Airman, sliding his hand down the back of his mother's leg when she put the wonderful Christmas dinner on the center plate, 
and the new children are playing on the floor. He is older and hisses at them disdainfully in German. One summer camping by the lake, he ran up to the rented cabin, and he came upon her sitting squarely on the airman's face. His Norman Rockwell tobacco pipe cast aside upon the paper instructions for this new Coleman stove. The last of the sweet pungent smoke everywhere, somehow. He was perplexed by the dirt on the bottom of her feet, her toes curling back and forth. Her flesh was large and imperfect. The light showing in, he saw every texture, and she was in ecstasy. Dr. Arnold Kegel, he was German as well. Playing with the cowboy in his hand, he looked at the Indian, plastic spear bent and pathetic. He cared not for either of them. The little plastic army men, the gray ones, his mother would never buy them. The little Nazi boy had to salute the stars and stripes and sing praises to the allegiance every morning. When they passed out the milk, he felt ostracized. Waiting in line for the slide of the big toy, he felt singled out. Waving his hand for the bus driver, he felt humiliation. He saw candy going under the desk on the down low. The teacher often she made him get up in front of everyone and made him read his essays. All the same consonants and vowels scratched in that fucking Deutschmark. And he watched the candy travel from fingers to fingers. The room was excited. The teacher droned on. His ginger eyebrows raised at the edges and the sneer of a rogue. He never lost his accent. And by the time he graduated from high school, not far from the Air Force base in Anchorage, they nominated him as most popular. It did get him caught drinking at 16 and again at 17, but he even took on the monumental icon of the Cold War cliché, the morning paper boy, delivering the Anchorage Daily News before Bill Allen tanked it. It seemed everybody had a story. When they were down... Yosef would always appear, many times a nice gesture already in his hand, and they could laugh and wipe a wet tear and sniffle. A lot of times the girls would hug him real tight, and his eyebrows would raise so high they smelled so good. The first time he saw a girl's hairy armpit, his lip curled up and his back slid away, his wrist came up, a tiny gesture. She was a beautiful girl and she was so sweet he felt betrayed somehow and he cut her off so cold she remembered it forever. Right up near to the graduation and he gets a DUI. The options so clear. He is signed into the Army National Guard. The reality of the situation hits heavy and he sees himself in the mirror wearing their uniform. It felt like a punch in the gut. Is it shame or humiliation that brings out that wet hair trophy hanging from his hat? His eyes sparkle and they let him see a few cities in the lower 48 and it isn't a good fit. And he comes back to Alaska. He's only 19. 
but he knows now when he finds the right place, he's going to set upon it like a barnacle, microscopic right on the chin of the whale. And he walks into this little nut and bolt shop. He walks up past the ice melt and the popcorn machine, his German accent a bit of sophistication. The man walks up and introduces himself. His name is James Thompson. And what could he do for him? And welcome to AIH. It's my store, he says. Joseph Boehm's lips make a kissing shape, and his fingers on his chin. Sophisticated, you say, the sneer of a rogue. As James was smiling and grabbing the application, Joe's eyebrows raised so high, he could feel the skin on the back of his neck tighten. He looked around and he could hear destiny hissing into his ear. Louder, he could barely concentrate. Mr. Thompson shook him. Joseph, the paper was in his hand now. Joseph's eyes looked up and dreamy and floating as if he was drunk for a moment. And then he was there. And he never, ever left. As previously stated, Joseph was born in Germany pre-World War II. When his German father perished in war, his mother remarried an American and had additional children. He spent the latter part of his childhood in Alaska. With a series of drinking offenses, two statutory rape charges before his brief incarceration of sexual assault of a 15-year-old girl with his 22-year-old friends. According to the report Escalation in Criminal Career, the first eight arrests are generally the same type of offenses, but begin to increase for more serious and violent offenses at the ninth or tenth arrest. As the age at the time of arrest increases, so do the chances of violence or substance offenses. Up in the lights of the banquet room in the nice hotel, the microphone crackles from up on the stage. The AIH Christmas Party 1999. One of the first companies to have stock options, they were technically employee-owned. The longer you were there, the more tickets you had in this giant jar that the German with the Santa Claus hat on is groping. The drinks are everywhere, voted as one of the most popular Christmas parties to attend. They were allowed to let their hair down, and they got downright rowdy. Even the owner came up from the table. Ha ha ha! His hand is in the jar. He'd raise his eyebrows every time he'd feign to pull out the ticket. He yanks the piece of paper, opens it, and looks about the room. He loves their eyes upon him. And he shouts the name. The room goes wild. It always went crazy when the new calendars came out. Joe Bohm had these printed up every year. The AIH calendar. It was beautiful and professional, and every month was a new girl. The calendars were copyright, trademark, legal nipples, and bush playboy. Pamela Anderson appearing twice. The first time appearing as a kid, really under her original name. Pia Reyes was there, a reprint from 1988. That sweet year of the Exxon Valdez. AIH was a great place to work. A working man retiring with fair and square, 780,000 in his 401k. It was amazing to see the last of the company men and women. There was always these flaws you'd see when someone works beside you for a few decades for sure. But the people seemed a little damaged somehow. A company of misfit toys. 
Santa, once a year, blowing the lid off the party and giving really great gifts in such creative ways. You'd have to drag almost any employee out screaming and kicking. AIH was part of their identity. They would never leave. Joe Millionaire worked his way from delivery boy to general manager in seven short years. Joe was charming, intelligent, and driven to succeed, diversifying with eight stores in Alaska and one of the few Alaskan companies who expanded outward, starting a store in Washington and in Oregon. Bohm says in a 1994 issue of Alaska Business Monthly, We seem to participate in any type of commercial enterprise that is out there. Hindsight 2020, the people could put certain things together, but almost no one would have thought that the house on Ocean View, his condo, no one would have dared to imagine the place on Thunderbird. He steps out of the ride and he squints up at the bright lights and the bright paint, lighting up the old Seward Highway parking lot like a giant flashy truck stop or a trucker's casino. The shit at the corners of his eyes kissed and pulled back slowly as he was blinking up at them. His keys jingled as he came up the walkway. Earlier than usual, he basically rolled right out of bed. The employees that were there stayed busy and stayed low on the horizon. He looked like he meant business. He looked disheveled, barely put together from some kind of an all-nighter putting their tills in order as the sky outside was changing in the low angle of the sun. He was coming down and out from upstairs, walking a stern huff, but satisfied. The one guy was holding the door for him as he was walking out, a double wad of cash and a soft heavy curve in his hand opening it a bit. It starts to fan into three big chunks with beautiful feathers spanning in between them. Then he crams the peacock in his gaping coat pocket. And as his ride is pulling out onto the old Seward Highway, the doorman of this little nut and bolt shop still has his keys in the shiny glass door. Of the 75 counts against Joseph Millionaire Bohm, all but two were terminated or dismissed conspiracy to commit sex trafficking, and conspiracy to distribute a controlled substance. The stories of the girls in previous episodes detailing smoking crack with Joe at 13 or having sex with him at 14 were of no consequence. The four-person defense team glossed Joe Millionaire to a shine, a pillar manipulated by greedy children. The investigation ended, the counts dismissed, even while the murders of Ruby and Dez go unsolved and other girls are still missing. Here's what it comes down to. So many social absolutes disappear when you hear them reading the charges out loud. Conspiracy stacking in groups, child sex trafficking, providing a place for the distribution of narcotics to children. They even have one for giving it to a pregnant lady. And that one is in there too. The entire time his lawyers are sitting there in contempt, an air of confidence, it is strategy. The Midwestern house mom had looked to his defendant. The subtleties in her eyes moving then to the lawyer. Its burning whip of red hot car antenna sizzles into her mind. 
identifying in things in her memory, and it is in there now. The compassionate furl of the lawyer's brow, the pity of it all. And it will leave its mark in her staunch voice, bringing up stern points that the guy who acts like her favorite pastor had argued quite well in the courtroom today. And to each the appointed time, softening them up, so much as counting on being lethal in the first meet and greet to those jurors in the pillbox. And it's a good thing too because most of these girls have been picked up on prostitution charges. So yeah. And you can see it the minute they walk in the room. It would be a horrible dream for a wife if she walked in on her husband in a dream with some cliche out of print young gal from the office. But it would be a nightmare if she walked in on him with one of these girls. Their eyes are all different. The one girl had told her testimony. There seems a strangeness of using that word. She was broken inside and you could see the deep smears in the clay of her spirit. Twenty-two and perhaps unrepairable, the poor thing. And you could just about hear the loveless, empty, slopping sex noises. In the house mom's lip, the lawyer noticed a tiny sneer. As she had side-eyed a pungent glare at the girl who was on the stand. You can see these tiny things and they all mean something. 15% of all husbands, even the Christian ones, are having sex with someone else. You don't think you'd see that? As he's breathing words in his sleep. Her eyes wide and slitting, then and even now. The lawyer made for his coat pocket with his fingers, almost as if he'd forgotten his tractor keys or, or to the fellowship hall. He waved it off like it doesn't even matter the importance of what he was saying right now. And then what he wanted to say to the girls was, I love you, and I think you need help. And sure, the years have been hard, and the poor decisions that you've made, you are so precious to us. And we are worried that there is no turning back for you. That you'll find someone else to manipulate someone with a pension or a social security check and start basically living in their house. Ordering stuff in the mail, bringing all types of people over, yes, they are alone. And you manipulated that. They interrupt him from the rose-colored clouds of the sun leaving and coming at once. But she was twelve years old, you motherfucker. There are nicknames that you give to the droning, pretentious word, juror. Did you see that one douchebag with the slouch leather boots? Oh yeah, don't forget that today, Susie Rottencrotch... She'd been a stripper for like three weeks. Mickey Rooney was getting too misty-eyed yesterday when she was talking about her recent suicide attempt. And it just got worse because Florence Nightingale, who sits in the back on the left, I'm pretty sure she's a fucking nurse. And when they went over the hospitalization, it was all over her face that this was not some bullshit suicide attempt. She could tell from the follow-up procedures alone 
that the attempt must have nearly changed its name to something else for a few moments in the ER. We learn and we move on. How do you win over a nurse? When the mom said that our defendant had told her he'd loan her some money and he would have a fun time with her and her daughters, she was appalled. And she's so desperate she still accepts a ride from him to her job? That fucking bitch. I'll tell you one thing. When she saw him somewhere and she was invited to party at his place, she said, I don't know where you live. And he said, his eyebrows raising on the outside. But his eyes were numbed in the slopping emptiness. He looked like a cretin. And I'm not sure how to do damage control because he'd looked up like that and he said, ask your youngest daughter, she knows. The ride home must have been surreal and confused. But as long as you spend your entire life, how did she say it? The old man who just wanted to get high and get off. Thankfully our justice system works. He died in jail. If they'd caught him when he was 21, he'd probably gotten out in five, six years. So justice served. When the old Nazi paper delivery boy was reading papers from his cell and the memory is building in intricacies, you can't really write them down. Who was that third girl in the bed? At that time it was you know who and uh, what's her name? And the other man who will act upon his orders remembers these interactions as drop-offs or a phone call, or beating a girl's ass and tearing handfuls of hair out in front of all of them because he wants it to run smoothly and self-sufficiently. The pecking order works twofold, once going in and another coming out. Joe Bohm's grasping at the face or the name, his memories are not steamy windows dropping off girls at Ocean View. It is from the jungle room knowing they are only minutes from walking into that door. And they learned to let him stare off a little. He'd be there deep, doing who knows what to whoever was around. And he snaps out of it, and when he gets that look, he's about to spend money. The lawyers had worked so hard, why bring up more shit? Leonidas Jones, otherwise known as Redmond, would later be on the touch and go with the lookouts. Rumors on the wind like bakery bread in the furnace. He saw her. And old Kirk Grandstaff would tell them about partying at Joe's condo while he's locked up. We're supposed to check on the place. You want to party? She is riding in the back of the truck. She's about to get sky high or who knows. Pink satin thong. Country pumpkin. That's the way he always heard it in his head when she'd use her words. He was certain now. The red man is already nodding to Sierra Roberts. We hope you have enjoyed this series. We are working to offer bonus material. In the meantime, we have two additional podcasts available on our Patreon. 
Inches and Mercury, a true aviation podcast, and AIH Calendar Girls, a podcast about the lives of the ladies featured in the AIH calendars. Search for TC49. You don't have to have Patreon to support the show. Like, subscribe, and reviews help a lot. Please visit our website for additional case information. Thank you.